We shall now return to Acts chapter 6. We're going to look at the verses from 8 to 15 this evening. Last Lord's Day evening, we looked at the first part of this chapter. We've noticed as we've gone through the book of Acts that as the church began to grow and to have influence, that persecution came its way. And we do believe this was Satan trying to wreck and cause havoc in the church. That failed, for the apostles would not stop proclaiming or preaching. Instead, they were determined to remain true to their commission. Then Satan tries something else. We have moral evil in the church where Ananias and Sapphira lied to the Holy Spirit and paid a heavy price for their deeds. But Satan does not give up. If it's not persecution, if it's not a moral scandal, there's something else. And that's what we noticed last week. He seeks to cause people to be distracted from their duties. And this is what we had last week. There was a dispute, there was a problem about the daily distribution of, of the food, which was the responsibility of the apostles. And they said, this is not reason, this is not right, this is not correct. We need to dispense with this work and give this to someone else. It's a vital work, it's not to be neglected, but it's not for us because we are going to devote ourselves continually to, to prayer and to the ministry of the Word. And therefore, these men were not distracted. They continued fulfilling the commission that the Lord Jesus Christ had given to them, and others would do what was required. And therefore, Satan failed again. Persecution, moral evil, distraction, these are the weapons that the evil one brings into the church in order that he might cause the church to be deflected. But the church now was about to enter into a period of extensive persecution. But all of it would ultimately result in the spreading of the good news and the enlargement of the Christian church. And seeking the Lord's blessing, we want to look at this section of Scripture this evening for our edification. And the title I want to give to it is, Here We Go Again. Here We Go Again. Here is the evil one at work. And we need to be reminded of this. We need to take this on board. We are not the early church but we are their successors, and we are part of the visible Christian church. And therefore, Satan will have his eye upon the representatives of the Lord Jesus Christ in each day and generation that we find ourselves in. And we will be no different. 
And we need to realize that the evil one does not like to see a church seeking to live according to the ways of the Lord Jesus Christ, seeking to be faithful to the commission, seeking indeed to live as a Christian. Satan will not take that line down. And therefore, he will be busy and he will be seeking ways and he is cunning and we need to be aware of him. But fun, whether we're aware of his schemes or devices or not, this is something that we must hold on to continually, that he will not give up. He will not. Yes, we know he knows his time is short. He knows he cannot have the ultimate victory. Yes, he knows these things, and he probably knows these things better than we ourselves know them. But because of his nature, because he is by nature against God and against Christ and against the cause, he must fight against it. He can only act according to his nature. And therefore, he will be continually at the people of God, either collectively as a denomination or a congregation, or indeed individually. Individual Christians may know something of the evil one seeking to draw them away from their allegiance to Christ. And we need to bear this in mind. He does not give up. He has great energy. He has great enthusiasm. He has many helpers. He is not supernatural. He is a spirit, certainly. But he is not omnipotent, and he does not know all things. And here we find him again. But this was indeed a pivotal time in the history of the Christian church because what happened here and in, in uh, chapter 7 and chapter 8, which we, will, which we will look at at time, you will find there that the church moved on. The church had mo was moving on. What do we mean by that? Well, the Lord Jesus Christ had said to them before he left, before he was taken up into glory in front of their very eyes, one of the things that he said to the apostles and the disciples, but ye shall receive power after that the Holy Ghost has come upon you, and ye shall be witnesses unto me both in Jerusalem and in all Judea and in Samaria and unto the uttermost part of the earth. Now, to date, the gospel really had been confined to Jerusalem, and we might say maybe to Judea, and it had certainly been confined to Jews, to native Jews, or to Hellenistic Jews, that is, Greek-speaking Jews who happened to be in the area. And therefore, at this time that we're looking at, the gospel had really only infiltrated the Jews. Well, we know that was not the ultimate intention of the Lord Jesus Christ. Our God is a global God. Our Savior is a global Savior. The Christian gospel is to go to the very ends of the earth. Up until this time, it was certainly confined within Jewry. But this was all going to change, and this was part of it. You see, 
the Christian gospel, it cannot be stopped. It cannot be stopped by persecution or by governments or by rulers legislating against it. It's impossible. It must go forth to the very ends of the earth. Now, the devil can do what he wants to do, but he will be overruled. And he can use all his enemies, all his allies. He can use them all. He can use whatever power he's got, but ultimately the Christian gospel must go to the ends of the earth because Jesus Christ shall see the travail of his soul. And he did not die just for the Jews. Salvation is of the Jews, certainly, but it has relevance and pertinence to every single man, woman, and child in the whole of creation. And God's message will not be stumped. It will go to the far corners of the world. And this was the beginning of the change. Because what happened here, and we shall look at it, it led to persecution. Terrible persecution. More than they had experienced before. It is, as it were, Satan turned up the ante he began to get really vicious now. He had tolerated the church somewhat, but now he was out and out against it. And he thought by bringing this persecution that he would be able to win. But what in actual fact happened, as we shall see, the gospel spread. The disciples were dispersed. And as they went forth, what did they do? Did they leave the gospel behind in Jerusalem or in Judea? No, far from it. They took the gospel with them and they began to speak. They began to evangelize and they began to interact with other people. And ultimately it came to the Gentile nations. But up until this time, it was confined mainly to Jerusalem. There is a lesson here, before we proceed any further, there is a lesson here for all of us. Jerusalem had been evangelized. They had been under the sound of the gospel before the crucifixion and the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. They were without excuse. They had heard the gospel on many occasions. And uh, the early church, the apostles, Peter, was instrumental in bringing the full-orbed gospel to them. They were able to go into the Old Testament and to see and to proclaim to them that the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ was all prophesied in the Scriptures hundreds of years before, and that Jesus Christ indeed fulfilled these prophecies. He was without doubt the Messiah they had longed for. He was there, and they crucified him. They crucified the Prince of Glory, and their sin was laid open and exposed before them, and they had ample opportunity and encouragement to repent and believe and to embrace the gospel, knowing that the gospel first came to them, and if they would repent and believe, they would be saved, and they would receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. 
Well, they had been evangelized. And as we noticed last week, because of what had happened, the Word of God went forth, and many more people were added to the church. And what are we told there in verse 7, for instance? The disciples multiplied in Jerusalem greatly, and a great company of the priests were obedient to the faith. So many did believe, even the religious people, even the priests who were part of the Sadducees, they actually believed. So the church did grow, and their evangelism was successful. But now it was time to move on. Jerusalem had their opportunity. But the gospel does not stay. It moves on. Now, of course, there was opportunities on other occasions to for the people in Jerusalem to hear the gospel. We're not going to say that for one moment. But it's clear now that the Holy Spirit was moving. He was moving the church in another direction, and they were to put their energy and their focus upon going out of Jerusalem and going into the other parts of Israel, to Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. In other words, they were to devote their energies and their time and their prayer and their preaching primarily to go out to the areas that had not heard the gospel. Before the flood, way back in Genesis, the Bible tells us this, Genesis chapter 6 and verse 3, The Lord said, My spirit shall not always strive with man, for that he also is flesh, yet his days shall be an hundred and twenty years. Now that verse says one or two things, but it most certainly teaches us it, that God will not always strive he will not always speak. He will not always prick the conscience. There'll come a time when God will be silent. He says here, his days shall be a hundred and twenty years. There is some debate over what this hundred and twenty years means. Some would say that it means that his lifespan is going to reduce. He's not going to live as long as he would ordinarily have lived before this point in time. In other words, his lifespan was going to be confined to a 120 years from, from this time on. Others would maintain that God was going to strive with them for 120 years. That's how long the ark took to build and construct. And of course, we know that during the, the construction of the ark, that Noah was a preacher of righteousness. And therefore, we're inclined to believe that that 120 years was their day of grace, if you like, when Noah, who was building an ark, was also preaching to them, telling them to repent and to believe and to find themselves in the ark. And for 120 years, he preached And we might well say, well, he did not have much success because at the end of his time when the ark was finished, only eight persons went into the ark, himself, his wife, 
their three sons and their wives. But whether we agree with that interpretation of the 120 years or not, it really doesn't matter too much to the main thrust of the verse. My spirit shall not always strive with man. And God's spirit had striven with the people of Jerusalem, and he had raised up apostles, and he preached. They, they preached wonderful news to the people, and they give authentication to their message by the many miracles that they performed. They were telling people about Jesus and the resurrection, and they were telling them to repent and believe, and they would be assured that they would be received. Their sins would be forgiven, and they would receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. But it was now coming to an end, or at least in the force and the impact that it did before. Yes, there would be other occasions to hear the gospel, but the life and the witness and the testimony was not, of the church was not going to be dominated and only concerned about Jerusalem from now on. And this, what we find here in this verses, is the beginning of that great move where the church went out to other people who never heard, or maybe did not hear much, or who were ignorant of Jesus of Nazareth, the one who came from heaven in order to seek and to save that which was lost. Here we have, we're told here, this one man here, Stephen. In verse 8, we're reminded, a man full of faith and power. This is how he's described also in verse 5. They chose Stephen, a man full of faith and of the Holy Ghost. Here was someone who was chosen among the seven. And he would have fulfilled his role of serving tables and administering the daily amount of food to the widows. He would have been diligent about that work. But such was this individual, full of faith and of power, he is found disputing. He no doubt was preaching in the, in, the, in the temple, and there were people come along and challenge him. And Stephen was able to stand up against these individuals. What are we told? Then there arose certain, verse 9 of the synagogue, which is called the synagogue of the Libertines, and Cyrenians, and Alexandrians, and of them of Cilicia, and of Asia, disputing with Stephen. You can just imagine the scene. Here is Stephen preaching. He's telling people about Jesus. He's telling the people what Jesus did. And he's telling them that Jesus went to the cross. And he's telling them that, yes, he was taken down to the cross. He truly died. And he was put in a tomb. But the third day he rose again. And he was going back and forth through the scriptures. He was telling them that all of this was consistent with the Old Testament scriptures that they believed. And these scriptures had been fulfilled in the last few months or days. And there was people there who did not like what Stephen was saying. And they began to debate with him. You can imagine, it looks as if there was a number of people there. And with the force of numbers, 
They thought they could master Stephen. They thought they could catch him out. They thought that they could do what the others thought they could do when they interviewed or questioned the Lord Jesus Christ. But no, they couldn't. Why? Because Stephen was full of faith. Friends, we need to ask ourselves, do we know anything of this? Oh, we might well have faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. And that's a wonderful thing to have. That's a blessed gift. That's a gift of God to have faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. And we must strive to have this. But and we're speaking here to Christians. Are we full of faith? Are we full of it? We all have to hold up our hands and say, no, this is not our experience. We're not full of faith. Well, friends, we should seek to increase our faith. How can we possibly do that? Well, we cry out to the Lord Jesus Christ that he might give us this faith, and we look to him. Is that really not, in essence, what he said to his disciples just before, they, just before he left them? You believe in God, believe also in me. They were believers in the Lord Jesus Christ. He's not speaking to them in an evangelistic sense. He's not calling unbelievers to have faith in Jesus Christ, as indeed we should, but he was speaking to believers. Judas, by this time, was gone. He was speaking to real disciples. Yes, they were weak and frail as far as the faith was concerned. And therefore, because they believed in Jesus, they were to continue to believe upon him. They were to grow. Their faith must grow. Now, friends, is this true of us? Can you say, Christian, that your faith is growing? Here we are. We're at the end of another year, almost. It's a time, surely, when we sit down, we think, we ponder, Maybe we have more time on our hands because it is the end of the year and we're coming up to a holiday period and it's a very dark time of year and sometimes we don't have much that we can do. Well, it's a good idea to look at our lives and to ask ourselves, do we know anything about growing in grace and in faith in the Lord Jesus Christ? We must strive indeed that we would be full of faith because, friends, when you're full of faith, as it was of Stephen, we have power. This is what it was in verse 8. And Stephen, full of faith and power, did great wonders and miracles among the people. And when he was disputing, or when he was preaching and be, began to dispute with these, uh, many of them would be proselyte Jews, maybe, or... Jews who had returned from the dispersion and they were found in the temple and they did not like Stephen speaking in that manner about the Lord Jesus Christ. And they thought, well, here we are. We know our scriptures. We know the Old Testament. We'll take on this man. And that's what they did. And verse 10 tells us, and they were not able to resist the wisdom and the spirit by which he spake. This is a terrible, humiliating event for people. Here's one man 
a humble disciple. Here he is, there by himself. Others are gathering around him. They're baying for him. But he's able to answer them. He can use the Scriptures mightily. He can go into the Old Testament. He can go to the Psalms. He can go to the law. He can find Christ there. And he goes and says, well, it is written. It is written. And this is what has happened. Here we are. We're living in New Testament times. The Messiah has come. Look, it says this concerning the Messiah in Isaiah 53. This is what happened. We are witnesses to these things. And they could not answer him. He was full of power. Well, we may well not be Stephen. And we may not be able to do great wonders and miracles among the people. We don't say we can do that, friends. But we have the same promise that Stephen has. We have the same promise that the Lord Jesus Christ gave to all his disciples. For it's written in the word of God for us. For I will give you a mouth and wisdom which all your adversities shall not be able to gainsay nor resist. When Jesus is talking there about being brought before uh, the rulers and the leaders and you're not prepared for it. You're maybe going about your daily business or whatever, just doing here what Stephen was doing. He was in the temple and he was preaching and he wasn't aware these people were going to come and debate with him. He wasn't prepared for that. But what happened? When the occasion came, when the opposition came, what happened? The, the promise that the Lord Jesus Christ gave to his people was fulfilled. I will give you a mouth and wisdom. Well, friends, that's a promise for today. That's a promise for the Christian today. We might be going out. We might be witnessing to someone. Or we might not be witnessing to someone. And we have an opportunity. We take it. We might say, well, I'm not going to take it. I don't really know what to say. But here's an opportunity. We are to step out in faith. We are to take it. We are to utter our words. And we are to rely on the promise. I will give you a mouth and wisdom which all your adversaries shall not be able to gainsay nor resist. Stand up. Speak up when the opportunity comes, because that promise is alive today for all Christians. Now, as we said, this incident here was really the springboard for great persecution to fall upon the church. Now, we cannot be certain about what we're going to see here, but it talks here about the synagogue of the Libertines and the Cyrenians and the Alexandrians and of them of Cilicia, Cilicia and of Asia, disputing with Stephen. Many commentators maintain that with this reference to Cilicia, that it could well be that one of those disputants with Stephen was Saul of Tarsus. That's widely held. And we know that his name is mentioned later on in, that, in the next chapter. We know that he was around when Stephen was stoned. 
And therefore the lesson is that although this terrible event was going to happen, that Stephen was going to be stoned to death, and that persecution, severe persecution, would come upon the church so that many believers had to leave Jerusalem and go and spread out. Yet, ultimately, it was all for the church's good and for the proclamation of the gospel. This should encourage us. This should remind us that God is able to bring good out of all evil. This should encourage us to continue to fight the good fight of faith, to realize that, come what may, God is sovereign. We are all concerned about the cause of Christ. That's true, and we should be. But there's no one as concerned, and we use that word loosely, as the Lord God Almighty himself. It is his cause. It's not our cause. We may thrive in it. We may support it. We may delight in it. But it's his cause. And he sees the end from the beginning. And this therefore calls us for faith, to trust to do our responsibility, to do what is required of us, and to leave the results to God alone. No doubt, if the Saul of Tarsus was among those disputing with Stephen, it would have had a profound effect upon him, because we know that Saul, who became Paul, was no mean individual. He was, in some real sense, mighty in the Scriptures. And therefore, for him to be confounded and for him to meet someone superior to him, it would have caused him to think and to ponder. Stephen obviously had the blessing of the Lord upon him. He's the first mentioned of the seven in the section that we looked at last week. And he's the first one mentioned here, the first Christian martyr. And obviously he had the blessing of the Lord upon him. Already quoted in verse 8, he was full of faith and power. Verse 10 tells us he had irresistible wisdom. And verse 15 tells us something more about Stephen as he was hauled before the Sanhedrin just before he was to give his defense, which we find in the next chapter. But what does it say about him as he sat in the council, or sat with the council, or sat with the council in front of him? What it said of the council, looking steadfastly on him, saw his face, as it had been the face of an angel. In other words, here, surely by this, God was telling these people, this is my servant. 
He has my blessing upon him. You're about to examine him, and you're going to do a terrible thing to him, but he is my servant. His face shines. And it's quite ironic, friends, because part of the accusation that's made against Stephen is that he blasphemes and that he speaks against the law. And he, what does it say here, verse 11? We have heard him speak blasphemous words against Moses and against God. And as far as the Jews were concerned, these were extremely serious charges. But can you remember someone else in the Old Testament whose face shone? Does your mind go back to Exodus after Moses had received the law and he came down from the mount? What does it say, for instance, in Exodus chapter 34 and verse 29? It came to pass when Moses came down from Mount Sinai with the two tables of the testimony in Moses' hand, when he came down from the mount, that Moses wist not that the skin of his face shone while he talked with him. Moses wasn't aware that his face had changed. The color of it changed. The complexion changed. Why? Because he had the approval of God. He was in the presence of God, and he had come down from the mount after being in the presence of God. And here were people were accusing Stephen of speaking blasphemous words against Moses. And this man, Stephen, had the same kind of complexion as Moses had, clearly demonstrating to them, even there, before they did what they did, that this man was truly blessed of the Lord. Blessed in the Lord because he was full of faith and power, because he had irresistible wisdom. These were gifts. These were all signs that this man is speaking the truth. He's not speaking lies. He's speaking the truth. And his face was a physical evidence that the approval of God rested upon him. Here we go again. The devil's out to destroy the church. God's overruling all things. The church goes on. It spreads. Its influence continues. Nothing can stop it. Come what may. Death itself cannot stop the church and its message from going to the ends of the earth. Amen. And may God be pleased to Bless his word to us. Let us pray.